What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Ben here to introduce Rip 341 of TFTC. Quick rip, but a very dense one. I sat down with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is the co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management, the author of Woke Inc., and somebody who is becoming a very strong voice in the fight against ESG and the death of modern-day capitalism in a world driven by people who do not care about you. They care about control. This trip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model, among other things. The way they do this is with their Vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. You always have control of your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. If you're ever in a pinch and need Unchained to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they are there for you. They have a wake love concierge service that is going to take you from zero to having one of these vaults set up. They're going to get you hardware wallets. They're going to have multiple video conference calls with you and they're going to get you set up, make sure that you're comfortable. If you're a business owner who's allocating the Bitcoin, if you're a high net worth individual, if you're just a humble sat stacker, make sure you take control of your Bitcoin, eliminate single points of failure, which include holding your Bitcoin on an exchange, that's an IOU, or holding it in a single SIG wallet that uh, has the potential to be lost or damaged. Uh, go to Unchained.com to check out all of this. Tell them the TFTC sent you. This trip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains is here to idiot-proof your mining operation. Don't be an idiot. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus auto-tuning firmware, make sure you download it because if you don't, you're leaving sats on the table. And only idiots leave sats on the table. <coughs> so go to Brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Go check out the Brains OS Plus page find out if your ASIC's compatible and if it is figure out a way to get it downloaded so you don't look like an idiot and they also have insights.brains.com which is an incredible dashboard that uh, lays out everything going on in the mining industry and provides you with some calculators to determine cost to produce a bitcoin profitability on your operation all that good stuff brains.com b-r-a-i-i-n-s.com this rip was also brought to you by our good friends at hodl 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 is here to bring you a peer-to-peer -peer exchange, a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform. Both are no KYC, no AML. If you're looking to stack sats without KYC, AML, HODL HODL is there for you. Go to hodlhodl.com. If you're looking to use your Bitcoin as collateral without being rehypothecated, go to lend.hodlhodl.com. You put your Bitcoin up as collateral on a two or three multi-sig. You hold a key, your counterparty in the trade holds a key, and HODL HODL holds a key. You know that your coins aren't being rehypothecated since you hold that key. You have visibility into the wallet, so you know that your Bitcoin aren't being moved and that if you pay back your loan, you're going to get that Bitcoin back at the end of it. Uh, they are also hosting the Baltic Honey Badger Conference again this uh, September, September 3rd and 4th in Riga, Latvia. Go to BalticHoneyBadger.com to check out. Everybody's going to be there. I'm going to be there and to buy your tickets. BalticHoneyBadger.com or BalticHoneyBadgerConference.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here to help you control your healthcare in a better way. Uh, Essentially what you do is you sign up, you pay a monthly fee that goes to a bank account that's dedicated to you. You can always take your money out of that bank account if you want to leave CrowdHealth, uh, but they're, they're crowdfunding healthcare. So you pay this monthly fee and then if you ever have a medical expense, you get the bill. CrowdHealth helps you negotiate that down. They negotiate on your behalf. Uh, you put up the first $500 of that bill and then the CrowdHealth community helps you crowdsource the rest of that healthcare bill uh they're also adding a bitcoin component to it so they have a bitcoiners community the first 1000 members that join their bitcoin community are going to get 
a hundred or excuse me, $99 a month for the first six months, which is a significant dis- discount. The way that works, you put your monthly payment into CrowdHealth and a portion of that goes to fiat that's held in that bank account. And another portion goes to Bitcoin. So you're stacking sats alongside uh, your, uh, your fiat health uh, bank account as well. Um, use the code TFTC uh, when you join the Bitcoin community to get that $99 a month for the first six months. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC to check out our landing page, which includes the episode I did with Andy Schroonover, who is the CEO and founder of CrowdHealth. Last but not least, this was brought to you by our good friend, friends, 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 friends at Upstream Data. We're here to solve your mining needs. If you're an at-home miner, and you want to mine at home, but you're worried about the heat and the sound of the ASICs, they have the black box, all right? The black box, you can put it outside your house, takes care of the noise. They significantly reduce the noise and it has very good heat control uh, as well. Your, your black box isn't going to catch on fire. It's insulated. Uh, if you want to get a black box and some ASICs, go to upstreamdata.ca. Uh, Use the code FREAKS for 5% off a bundle of a black box and ASICs. But that's not the only thing they do. If you're an at-home miner, that's a great product. But even if you're upstream uh, on the oil field, if you're using natural gas that would otherwise be flared or you're just using stranded gas, they create hash huts as well. Uh, I personally own a 50-kilowatt hash hut and have been using it since uh, the beginning of this year. And it has been an incredible product. I can attest to it. And I've had literally no downtime outside of oil changes. And I've been able to steadily stack sats without thinking of it. They p- provide hash hutch generators. Uh, and again, if you need them, they have ASICs as well. So if you're using a small amount of strand of gas, or even if you're using larger amounts of gas, they have a 900 kilowatt hash hut for you as well. They'll get you the huts, the generators, and the miners if you need them. If you're in the oil and gas industry, you're doing pretty well right now. ASIC prices are relatively low. Could be a good time to diversify. Go to upstreamdata.ca to check out everything they have going on. And if you buy a hash hut, tell them that TFTC sent you. Enjoy this rip with Vivek Ramaswamy. It was a great, dense rip. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to TFTC. Very excited for this conversation. Sitting down with Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management and author of Woke Inc., which I've been reading through the last couple of days. And I'm very excited for this conversation. Thank you for joining us, Vivek. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to this. I'm as well. I mean, I think, like I was saying before we hit record, the message that you're getting out there is extremely important. I think the tweet that you pinned to your profile uh, four days ago is uh, very indicative of what's going on right now. We're watching the death of modern day capitalism via three three letter acronyms, uh, ESG being one of them. We've been on a pretty big crusade against ESG here at TFTC. And I think uh, to push that conversation forward, having you on is uh, incredible for that. And uh, I guess 
having Woke Inc. on top of mind here, I think it would be a bit interesting to get a, a bit of your background, particularly the fact that you were um, compelled to leave a company that you were the CEO of early last year to to really go out and start Strive Asset Management and start beating the drum against the the death of modern day capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a I'll give you a brief nutshell of why I did what I did. But my background was actually in science. I studied molecular biology in undergrad. I thought I was going to be a scientist. I thought that uh, you know my calling was to discover medicines one at a time. I actually found a first career in biotech investing, though, after I graduated. The, the time in the lab, the portion that you had to spend of your life working on one project before you figured out whether or not it worked, at best, you were going to do that three or four times over your entire life. And so I said that, you know what, I'll, uh, I'll take the bet on multiple different companies doing it at the same time instead. Ended up becoming a biotech investor from 2007 to 2014, co-managed a biotech portfolio, had some success uh, in that domain. You know, so good luck along the way never hurts. I uh, spent three of those years in law school. So that's when I started to turn the wheels on some of these legal and political philosophical issues that I that you know inform the mission I'm on today. But anyway, yeah, I graduated in 2013. In 2014, I, I left my job as an investor to found Royvent, biotech company that I built, led as CEO for seven years. And you know, look, I, I really, I really found it thrilling to develop medicines for patients who needed them. We Worked on a number of drugs. Five of them are FDA-approved products today. That's probably some of my career accomplishments that I'm most proud of. But I did step down a year and a half ago because I grew concerned about this, you know, not, not a biological cancer, let's say, but a cultural cancer that threatened to kill the dream that allowed me to achieve everything I ever had in, in my life. My parents came to this country with almost no money in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They came with an education, but they didn't come with money. And I, in one generation later, was the founder of a multi-billion dollar company, had had success achieving the, the greatest education that I had been able to enjoy, that they were able to give me. And to watch this new culture emerge in the very system, American capitalism, that allowed that dream to, to, to be achieved by, by me and so many others like me, that was something that, that started to bother me, but it especially started to bother me because I found it present. I found those the threats to that dream presenting themselves in a context where you couldn't talk about that threat in the open. It was a new apologist cultural philosophy that demanded companies take a monolithic perspective that you know did not represent the true diversity of perspectives in the American population. And to me, that was a mismatch that needed to be addressed. And so for me, the first step was just to start talking openly about it again. I, I couldn't do that as a CEO, certainly not of a CEO of a biotech company, a multi-billion dollar venture-backed biotech company that, that had uh, an expectations of what was supposed to come from a company like that. So, you know, I decided that as much as I loved that work and respected the people I worked with, part of, part of speaking openly was to not filter what you had to say through the filter of corporate self-interest. And so I stepped aside as CEO and spent the last year and a half really unconstrained in, in expressing my own perspectives, hopefully to, to start the kinds of conversations that I felt like we, we weren't having in our marketplace of ideas. And so anyway, that, that's what got me started on the journey. And then I'm happy to tell you more about where it took me, but that's the background. Yeah, no, and I, again, I think it's extremely important that you stepped away from your position 
at Royvent to to speak up because I think it's imperative that more and more individuals speak up because the changes that are being driven by the stakeholder capitalism, which you talk about in the first few chapters of uh, Woke Inc., is really driving a material degradation in the quality of life here in the United States and across Western developed economies. And I, I think now more than ever is important to identify this problem and call it out for what it is. And that's what I like most about Woke Inc. so far, as much as I've read, is that you do a really good job of distilling exactly what's going on around the concept of stakeholder c capitalism and how crony capitalism is still here. It's just changed its facade a bit. Yeah. And I think it's worth talking about that trend a little more specifically, you know, now that you had a little bit of background out of the way. I mean, stakeholder capitalism is on its face an appealing philosophy. It says that companies have to work together with government actors and with each other to achieve a social good that goes beyond just selling products and services to people who need them for the pursuit of profit. You know, on its face, that sounds like it's a pretty appealing way to make the world a better place. Well, what's the problem with that philosophy? There's two problems with it, actually. One of them was pointed out by Milton Friedman 50 years ago. It's as true today as it was when he pointed it out. But there was a second problem with it that no one had pointed out, and that's, where, that's why I actually jumped into the void. So the so Milton Friedman version of the problem was that he thought that when companies focused on these other social objectives that had nothing to do with their core business of providing a product or service, that they would do a worse job of providing that product or service, which in turn would make the companies less profitable, which in turn would shrink the size of the economic benefit delivered by those companies, which in turn prevents capitalism from doing what it's supposed to do, which is lifting all people, including, including people at every level of the socioeconomic ladder, lift people up. Capitalism cannot deliver on its economic promise if it's also distracted by or diluted by solving for other societal objectives that our politics should deal with instead. I agree with most of what he had to say, to be clear. But my problem with stakeholder capitalism and the reason that I felt so compelled to speak out about it, I started writing on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Eventually, an agent approached me that morphed into the book. Eventually, that morphed into the activism across the country over the last year. And then eventually that's morphed into Strive Asset Management, which I'm running today. But the thing that motivated me to do all of that wasn't just to rehash the Milton Friedman arguments because, you know, God bless the man. He's, he, he said what he had to say. And there was a lot of truth in what he, what in his message. My problem was the reverse problem, actually. Not my concern just for American capitalism, but my concern for American democracy. And what do I mean by that? Well, stakeholder capitalism also says that the right answers to questions ranging from how or whether to address climate change to how or whether to address systemic racism or racial injustice or misogyny or whatever the core social issues of the day may be, that the people who decide the answers to those questions aren't the citizens in the public square who in a democracy are supposed to decide those issues through free speech and open debate where every person's voice and vote counts equally. No, that's not the model. What stakeholder capitalism says is a small group of capitalist elites decide the answers to those questions behind closed doors, kind of like they used to do in old world monarchical Europe, where a small group of labor elites and church elites and business elites used to get together behind closed doors and decide what the right answer is to these questions for the rest of society at large. The American Revolution was fought on the idea that we reject that monarchical model for better or for worse the people decide where everyone's voice and vote counts equally 
what the right answers are to political questions that we don't want capitalist interference in. And the thing is, that's not a left-wing argument or a right-wing argument. It's, an, it's a pro-democracy argument. And it was the inverse of Milton Friedman's concern. And nobody, as best I could tell, had taken that concern up back in 2020 when I started writing about this stuff. And I'm motivated by both saving the integrity of capitalism and saving the integrity of democracy. I think the right way to do that is to keep them apart from one another, to get like we have a separation of church and state in this country. I think we should have a separation of commercialism and a separation of politics. But I think that nobody had had really put their finger on the on the pulse of what I see as the biggest threat to democracy today, which is the rise of this new managerial corporatocracy, the managerial class within the private sector, the Larry Finks of the world becoming the bureaucratic technocratic emperors that tell the rest of the country how to live their lives by using market force to do it. To me, that was a betrayal of what democracy was supposed to be all about. And, and it's, you know, it's a little bit different than the Friedmanite version of the problem 40 years ago. Yeah. And I, I'm probably more partial toward like the free market vision of this, right? Like you have Larry Fink and BlackRock using their insane amounts of capital that is acquired by individuals who are putting their uh, their savings and passive funds that that BlackRock is then able to use to to vote uh, at the shareholder level on behalf of their customers. And to me, it, it, just from a free market perspective, it is the opposite of a free market because it's not an emergent uh, thing. You have a top-down attempt to centrally plan these industries. And I think BlackRock and its pushing of ESG specifically is the, the perfect example of that. They're using their, their immense amounts of capital to attempt to uh, pers- or force corporate boardrooms to, to act in a one way. And it's not really the market determining outcomes. It's, it's BlackRock and all their capital. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, let's just make the best argument for the other side. They will say that this is the free market working, right? There's no government telling these companies to behave that way. BlackRock just says, hey, it's us, the shareholders. Right. And isn't that what the free marketeers wanted? Shareholder primacy. The idea that the CEOs who run these companies, they work for and report to the shareholder. Isn't that the, isn't that the vision of post 20th century capitalism, shareholder primacy driven capitalism? Isn't that what Milton Friedman wanted? Well, here's the thing. It's a problem of language. They claim to be the shareholder, but they're not the actual shareholder. <laughs> the actual shareholders are the owners of capital, the firefighters, the nurses, the teachers, the doctors, the small business owners, the big business owners. I don't care who they are. They're the owners of capital who are unknowing to them, having their money managed by a large institution like BlackRock that is using their money to advance an agenda that they themselves disagree with if they actually knew what was going on. And to me, what I've discovered is people didn't realize this. What's happening with their 401k account? What's happening with their pension fund? What's happening with their union funds money? What's happening with their taxpayer money that's wielded by a state treasurer? What's happening with the money in their brokerage account? They have no idea that the people who are managing that money are not just solving for their financial interests, but are also solving for these other social objectives, some of which they don't even agree with. And even if they did agree with them, They might say, hell, I would rather donate to a philanthropy or to a political cause after you give me the maximal return because that's my business. That's not your business. So even if I agree with what you're doing, I don't want you to be the one doing it. I want to be doing that in my own time on my own account. And for a lot of people, 
It's even worse than that because they don't agree with it. And they're donating their philanthropic dollars and their political dollars and their civic dollars to advance one agenda, thinking they're making the world a better place the way they think they're making the world a better place, only to have that erased because BlackRock is pushing a different agenda. And so my principal problem with this actually isn't the content of the agenda that BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard are pushing. I disagree with some of those agendas, just put my cards on the table, but that's not the heart of my criticism. It's that we do not have a class of modern monarchs in the system of American capitalism that get to use other people's money to decide the answers to those questions. And the scale of the problem is so dang large that it's actually it actually, it actually demands a solution before these before these entities wield state-like power that's every bit as oppressive as an overreaching government itself. I'll give you one example of this is what's happening in the oil and gas sector right now. If you had if, if the thought experiment, I, I think I said this on CNBC a few weeks ago. If, if you do that, just as a thought experiment, you got the CEOs of Exxon, ConocoPhillips and Chevron and BP and Shell, all right, get together in a room and they coordinate to decide to cut gas production and then gas prices spike at the pump as a result of that. We have a word for that in this country. It's called price fixing. It's an antitrust violation. Cut and dry, that's a problem. But somehow now the largest asset managers in the world force those companies through share through shareholder mandates, I use shareholder in air quotes, but shareholder mandates to do the same thing. And somehow we celebrate that as ESG instead. This is something that's duping the everyday citizen. And you know, it gets even worse. It, it's just, you just go layer after layer, you peel this onion, it gets more and more rotten the closer you get to the core. So let's say, let's take that, let's take that example further. They had them cut oil production, right? How do they do it? Well, BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, they voted in favor of three dissident directors that made it onto the board of Exxon last year as part of an activist campaign for a revised climate change strategy at Exxon. All right. So, so before this, this activist campaign, Exxon's business plan was to increase oil production by 25 percent over the next five years, 2020 to 2025. Afterwards, they seat the new directors. Exxon changes its business plan. They change Exxon's business plan to reduce oil production 20% from those prior forecasts in that same period. Now, you would think that that's bad enough, and it is bad enough. I mean, look, Exxon's a less successful company, in my opinion, as a result. There's a gas shortage. There's an oil shortage in the country. Gas prices are spiking. Coordinated action against America's largest oil company, the world's largest oil company, to be able to cut oil production in that in, in, at that inopportune time, that's bad enough, right? Now, you would think that maybe the climate change activists would be happy if those projects are no longer proceeding. But guess what? Those projects are absolutely proceeding. They're just spun off and sold to other parties who are pursuing them. Let's take an example of one of the parties who's at the front of the line to pick up some of those profitable projects that Exxon is dropping. None other than PetroChina. <laughs> now, now, you want the cherry on top? Look up who is one of the largest shareholders of PetroChina? None other than BlackRock. I, I'm, I could make this stuff up if I tried. All right. So the, one of the largest shareholders of Exxon say they need a revised climate change strategy. And so they need to drop oil production as a U.S. company over here when the same projects in the name of fighting climate change are still happening on God's green same earth in China. But the companies that are able to pick it up, like PetroChina, are owned by the same firms 
that gave one shareholder mandate to Exxon and a different shareholder mandate to a Chinese company, leaving the American investors holding the bag. You cannot represent diverse client interests, conflicting client interests, if you're going to be a vocal activist and still be a good fiduciary for both of them. It's like being a lawyer representing the plaintiff and the defendant in the same case. You can't give the vocal argument for both and still be a good legal fiduciary for both. The same thing applies to being a financial fiduciary. So I think the whole thing is a scam at every level. They have covered it in the veneer of virtue. We live in this apologist moment for American capitalism after the 2008 financial crisis that allowed BlackRock to swoop in and fill the void, douse its self-interested game in the, in the veneer of virtue. And unfortunately, our culture bought it for the last decade. But now I think people are hungering for something different. They're starting to see through the act. It's a big part of what my book is all about, is describing the magic act at the heart of this fake form of modern American capitalism to revive the real thing, to say that, you know what, we will pursue excellence in our products and services and in pursuing profitability too, unapologetically. We have nothing to apologize for to pursue, to pursue the very best we can in whatever we're doing. Maybe it's an oil company, maybe it's a solar company. I don't care. Be the best version of who you're gonna be. You don't have to apologize for it. That's what true free market capitalism is all about. That is the best system known to mankind to lift people up from poverty. And guess what? It is also an apolitical space in a politically divided time where we can all come together and innovate together, build together, do whatever, whatever it is, trade together, do whatever it is we do together in an apolitical private sector that can bring us together, whether we are black, white, red, or blue, I don't care. That's the promise of free market capitalism in a democratic society. And we have these toxic actors to the tune of $20 trillion with the top three asset managers in the United States that are wrecking the whole thing. And I'm, that's why I'm out on a mission to wreck the edifice that they have built to create a new one that says, you know what, let's distribute choice and take that, you know, take a jackhammer to that and take the concentration of capital and recreate competition in the marketplace of ideas by first allowing the everyday citizens whose money is being abused today to be able to at least have some alternative to have their voice represented to corporate America as it is their right to have, because it's in the end, it's their money in the first place. Yeah. I mean, you said people are hungering for, for change uh, figuratively and literally right now. I think once, and well said. <laughs> once uh, the lower substrate of Maslow's hierarchy of needs begins to erode away and people can't fill their gas tanks, they can't get to work, they can't uh, their, their grocery bills is increasing to such a point that they can't buy enough food to feed their family. That's when people are like, okay, there's a problem here. What is it? And I think what you're doing is identifying it. And in the book, you talk about the solutions to begin fixing this problem. And one of them is uh, changing the liability of, of corporate corporations, correct? I, I talk about a number of legal solutions in the book. I know you're, you're, uh, it sounds like you're in the first half of it. You get to some of those in the second half. I, I can talk about those. I, I don't know how legally interested your audience is. Uh, mm -hmm. We can geek out on that all you want. I will tell you, though, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I spoke to half of Congress earlier this year. A lot of policymakers have reached out across the states at the federal level. And I've really enjoyed you know, going on an educational campaign nationally, speaking to grassroots audiences, to policymakers, to business leaders. I will tell you something that I don't think many of the legal solutions that I offered in the book 
are going to actually get passed in the form that they need to get passed. And, and even part of it, you know, was a admission on my own part that every law is going to have an unintended consequence. And, and that's kind of what got me to, even after I wrote the book, to evolve my own thinking a little further to say, all right, the point of those legal solutions I present in the book is to start a conversation. Okay. It's to, it's, it's to provoke a conversation that we weren't otherwise having by conservatives telling them the myth that this is free market capitalism without recognizing that the free market that they idealize does not exist today. And liberals who used to be skeptical of corporate power looking the other way because they happen to love the values that these corporations are pushing today. You have this new force of these of these corporatocratic monarchs that are wielding state-like power with the in bed with the state in many cases to do it, the likes of Larry Fink, that have duped both sides, Republicans, Democrats, and a submission. What I wanted to do in the book is to say that, all right, let's let's take a look at the legal architecture that a lot of these big asset managers like Larry Fink and the people who lead them like Larry Fink have exploited. Let's make some changes to that edifice to actually level the playing field. And, 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 and I've been an advocate for some of those legal policies, and I think some of them could make a difference. But what I, what, what I learned in the upshot of it is the, the, the political system is pretty captured. It's very difficult to drive clean legislative change all the way through. And even if you did, I'm, you know, I think with, with, with libertarian instincts of my own, you know, for, I don't call myself a libertarian anymore for reasons we could talk about, but, you know, <laughs> classically libertarian instincts. I worry about even the best intention law is always going to have some unintended consequence, which is why I decided to throw my lot actually after I published the book, but thinking about this traveling the country, evolving my own thoughts to do it the old fashioned way through competition, right? Nobody was going after competing with this cartel. If you have an anti-competitive problem, I do think it's an anti-competitive problem of sorts, solve it the old fashioned way through competition. So that's why I stepped up to the plate, started Strive going head on after BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard and anyone else who behaves like them with other people's money to say that, you know what, for the few people who might want that done with their money, great, go with BlackRock. For everybody else, you need an alternative. And, and that was why I decided to create Strive, which I thought which I thought was far more promising than either the litigation or the legal theories I present in the book or the policy changes I propose. Though I think they're really fun to talk about and I'm happy to talk about them. But, but my mindset, even since publishing the book, has shifted more towards market solutions. And, and, you know, I think that legislative solutions could play a role along the way. And I hope some thoughtful policymakers, you know, pick up on some of those strands, but, but I'm not going to wait for that to happen. I, I considered running for office too, to be one of those policymakers. I can tell you all the reasons why, why I decided <laughs> that was a terrible idea as well, uh, but decided to actually focus on the market as the way to do this. Yeah. I think your efforts are better served in the private sector. And no, so we're doing. we'll see how successful we are. I, I think we'll be successful, but but we'll see. But I. But that's where I've definitely. That's where I've definitely. You know, cast my die. No. And so I mean, I became passionate about this trend because this is a Bitcoin podcast. I'm in the Bitcoin mining industry, and okay. what we've what we've I seen. Didn't even know the context, really, I just you know, mm -hmm. it was cryptocurrency related. Okay. Yeah, Bitcoin specifically, and so in so the mining industry, Bitcoin yeah. mining gets picked on for using too much energy, and the whole concept wow. of mor moralizing energy use is has always seemed asinine on its face to me and despite the fact I mean, let me let me just let me just comment on that for a second it is asinine i mean i, I it is it is a war on human flourishing okay mm -hmm. there's a great book came by alex epstein um he's a friend mm -hmm. of mine uh, like his book fossil future but anyway this is not a war uh it's not about about protecting the environment oh amazing <laughs> i read a preprint i read a preprint copy before it came out you know yeah, this is this is a war on human flourishing 
Bitcoin mining is, is it, the people who do it are in part moving the ball forward to a form of human flourishing. But that's not the only thing they're attacking. They're attacking fossil fuel usage of every kind, which contributes to human flourishing of other forms, including human flourishing that allows you to adapt to the consequences of climate change, to master the consequences of climate change. Right? W- one of the things I, I love learning from, from that read of Alex's book was that if you look at the climate disaster death rate from 100 years ago to today, down by 98%, one out of 50 people that would have died in 1920 die today as a consequence of climate-related disasters. Why is that? Because of more effective use of fossil fuels. But then let's say that, okay, somebody's just wrong about that, but they're well-intentioned and say that, okay, I think the thing that I should be caring about is carbon emissions rather than actually the impact on human life of a changing environment. Let's say this is an intellectual mix-up, right? This is what's going on is people think they're supposed to care about the human impact on the environment when in fact they claim that the thing that matters is the impact of environmental change on human beings. Those are two different things. The impact of environmental change on human beings is a totally different phenomenon than the change in the environment exerted by human beings. Those are two different things. If you care about the latter, you measure carbon emissions. If you care about the former, as I do, the thing you might measure is the climate disaster-related death rate. But let's say this is an earnest mistake and someone just hates fossil fuels because they think they're making the planet worse for human beings. I think that that's an incorrect view. But let's say that that's the view. The thing that's really puzzling (laughs) is that the same people who are opposed to Bitcoin mining, the same people who are in the same movement that's opposed to the use of fossil fuels is also puzzlingly against the use of nuclear energy Mm -hmm. and hydroelectric energy through the building of dams that have zero carbon impact on the environment. In fact, if carbon is dirty, and I don't don't like that conflation, but let's temporarily adopt it. If that's dirty energy, the cleanest forms of energy on planet Earth to produce energy are the enemies number three and four after oil and natural gas and maybe coal up there as well. Why is that? This is a war not on carbon. This is a war on human flourishing. And you have Ultimately, the people who care about advancing the human condition and the different ways we do it through our markets, through the spread of free market capitalism, that's one camp. And in the other camp is a camp that not only wants to apologize for it, but apologize for it by destroying that foundation. And in so doing, they destroy not just the foundations of capitalism, but as I talked about earlier, also the foundations of democracy. And, and that is, the, to me, the defining struggle of our time. It is not red versus blue. It is not Republican versus Democrat. It is the managerial class versus the free everyday citizen. Okay. It is the great reset. This new vision invented in Davos, Switzerland, that says that leaders in the private sector and public sector have to dissolve the boundaries between the two to work together towards the common good, which by the way, includes regulating Bitcoin, which by the way, implementing global regulatory changes to create alternatives to the to the central banking fiat and central banking monopoly around the world. But that's just one small part of the story. This sec- sectors, the private sector leaders and public sector leaders dissolving boundaries to work together towards their monolithic vision of the common good. That is the great reset versus what I see on the other side, which is the great uprising of citizens in democracies around the world saying that, no, we don't want you working together with monarchical power telling us how we are supposed to live our lives. We determine that in a free society together where everyone's voice and vote counts equally, even if we disagree, messy as that might be, 
That's how capitalism works in the marketplace of ideas. That's how democracy works through a one person, one voice system of political governance. And, and to me, that's the defining struggle of our time. Managerial class versus everyday citizen. The great reset versus the great uprising. And I would tell you, this is not a partisan issue. It is a transpartisan issue. It is not even an American issue. It is a transnational issue. It is a trans, transnational, transpartisan issue that echoes the, 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 the war that was fought. It was a transnational battle in 1776 and 1789 between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, between the citizen and an old monarchy. That is one of those moments we live in today in the year 2022 is a different kind of struggle between the everyday citizen and a new type of monarchy that has emerged not only in the United States, but in Canada, in Western Europe, in Australia, in Western democracies as we know it. And I think, I hope this story ends not with, I don't mean to be dramatic about this, but, but I, think if, I think if there's a third world war, I think this will have played an important role in spawning it. I don't want to see this end with those forces coming to a collision course head, but rather to taking the energy of the great uprising and channeling it in a positive and constructive direction that creates real alternative institutions that respect the will of that everyday citizen. That's a big part of what led me to, to found Strive. And, and you know, I hope that we that we are successful in doing it because because the world needs it. And I hope other people step up to create similar institutions challenging the existing incumbents with that vision in hand. I, I completely agree. I think it's undeniable at this point that the energy policies specifically that were spawned from this attempt by the Davos class to granularly control the global economy has shifted leverage into Russia's favor where they felt uh, comfortable enough to invade Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, think about it. Put yourself in Putin's shoes. It's a cost-benefit analysis, right? All right, they're going to sanction me, but if those sanctions hurt them more, if they're shooting themselves in the foot, that's going to make them incrementally less likely to impose the full level of sanctioning. And so that affects my cost-benefit calculus. There's costs and there's benefits to Putin of invading Ukraine. Well, I know one of those costs is a little bit less because I know that the imposition of that cost is going to hurt the other side more. You know, it's not, it's not super complicated stuff here. It's cost-benefit analysis. You tip the balance in favor of encouraging him to go. And I think that that's just one example among many. I mean, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see China go for Taiwan, you know, after Xi Jinping takes his third term, an unprecedented third term coming this October. I think that starts the clock between October of this year and January of 2025, when the next U.S. president could take office. That's his window. Put yourself in his shoes. It's a cost-benefit analysis. It's a risk-benefit analysis. He's not going to take the risk before October, in my opinion, because he wants to introduce no risk to his chain of succession. But he's not going to take the risk of a new U.S. president taking office either. That's going to be his window. And I think the things we've done to West, to, to sort of Western self-reliance of what the market could have provided by apologizing for the success that we had otherwise created erodes the foundation of our ability to stand up to those geopolitical threats. And, you know, I'm concerned about it, but, but very few other people are willing to talk about it in the open. No better way to do it than to, than to actually start talking openly, but not just talking about it. I think using the market to deliver some of those solutions, hopefully more quickly than the political process ever will. Yeah, I think the market is certainly going to be quicker than the political process, which is pretty constrained here in the U.S. And I do want to be respectful of your time. I know we had 30 minutes here. We're coming up on that. But I will say, as a Bitcoin podcaster, but I think Bitcoin as a mechanism to sort of defund 
the fiat monetary system that uh, forces people to allocate money to people like BlackRock could aid in in shifting force back towards a, a free market, free democracy society. Uh, you, you, yeah, I've only I gotta admit, I mean, I've only in the last year begun to become more educated on on cryptocurrency. I mean, biotech guy with a legal background and writing books on stakeholder capitalism and now in asset management. But, you know, maybe, maybe we should stay in touch and I can learn more about it. I, I agree with you. I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, I do think that that's a, that's a part of the story. I, I think that, you know, the only thing, this is an observation from afar. I think there is no such thing as a silver bullet anywhere, right? There's no silver mm-hmm. bullet legal solution. There's no silver bullet market solution. I think it's highly unlikely that there's a silver bullet Bitcoin solution. But it's about moving the ball forward in, in, in the different frontiers towards the devolution of power, the devolving of power back to the citizen, back to the owner of capital. That's what it takes for the free market to actually deliver on its promise. And the more concentration of centralized decision-making power you have, be that in the hands of BlackRock or be that in the hands of, of countries that print fiat currency, the less likely you you believe that free market capitalism can be to deliver on its promise. And so you know, first principles, I agree. The only thing I would say to all of us is, is there's no silver bullet, end all, be all answer. It's all part of a cultural evolution that hopefully restores the essence of both capitalism and democracy. Yeah, I completely agree. There's no silver silver bullet, but one of the, uh, the phrases we say often on this show is fix the money, fix the world. Money is the base like tool. Is the like base that. tool of humanity. And if you fix that base, then you can go and find other bullets to, to begin pushing the tides back in our favor. Um, it's like, they, it reminds me of the first chapter of my book, actually, I'll just close on this one, is that it called, called it the Goldman rule. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I worked at Goldman Sachs and, and it, was a, it was a funny story for those interested in the story, they can read the book. But at the end of the story, there's a, there's a guy who's in the group who says, you know, you ever heard of the Golden rule? And, you know, both of us were, we were just talking about this before, educated in Jesuit schools, you know, I, I obviously know the Golden rule, you treat other people <laughs> like you want to be, right? And, uh, and he says, no, 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 the Golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> I call that the Goldman rule. And you know what? It's true of the Black Rocks and the Larry Finks of the world today. He who has the gold makes the rules. I think that's the problem. You go, go for You go for the gold, you solve the problem. I think that you give that back to the people who actually own it. That's halfway, that's halfway towards a solution in a better place. So fix, anyway. Fix the money, fix talk. the world. Yeah, you've, I like got, that. you've got to go. You've got another book coming out this fall, correct? Uh, Nation of Victims? Nation of Victims coming out in uh, in mid September. Uh, you know, it's, think of it as a sort of sequel to Woking. So appreciate that, man. Awesome, Vivek. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. It's extremely important. Hopefully, we can do this again in the future. Thanks a lot. Talk to you. Have a great day.